what's up? Welcome to Mix in America. This is Josh Cohen. With me uh, is Pastor Vince Freeman. Uh, he was became a friend of ours when we were in San Diego. He was the young adult pastor there. Actually has a different title at the same church now, but I'll let him talk about that a little bit. So first of all, welcome Vince. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Josh. Um, really excited to have this conversation today. So let's get let's get started right away with um, your experience growing up. I, this podcast is about race. Uh, I've had different guests on. I've shared my experience. Uh, I believe I truly believe in the power of someone's story, and you cannot you cannot discredit someone's story. You cannot argue. You can argue opinions in politics and whatever you want, but you can't uh, argue someone's story. And then, and your experience shapes you, right? So what, what you believe, good or bad or whatever, um, I, I really believe in the power of someone's story. So if you could, Vince, can you just share a little bit about uh, what your story was like growing up as a black man in North Carolina, right? You're from? Yep, yeah. So originally from North Carolina, born and raised I'm from the west part of the state. Um, so a town called Asheville. Um, for those on the west coast, it's kind of like uh, Portland a little bit, like people, kind of compare the two, but a lot smaller. So a lot of kind of hippie vibes, like uh, it's in the mountains. So there's that whole thing, um, pretty liberal city. And um, I went to basically an all white private Christian school growing up. So my mom worked at the school. Uh, we were the only black family at that school for a really, really long time. And so it was really just me and my sisters. Um, it was a K through 12 school. So basically maybe about 600, 650 students. And that was it. Um, so I grew up with a lot of the same kids. Uh, we were friends, we knew each other, but there was this kind of arm's length distance that was between us. Yeah. And it, st I started to notice it, you know, pretty early kindergarten, first grade, where it was like, oh, you're, you're the same as us because we're all kids, but you're different than us. Yeah. Um, and that was really painful. Um, and so that really just continued year after year. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't have the words to articulate how I was feeling. I honestly didn't really have a lot of people I could go to to talk about it. Um, and until really our closest friends, another black family came to that school about seven or eight years later, you know, we became really the two of the only black families there. And so yeah. that was pretty rough for me growing up. So from maybe explain this a little bit, but what I'm hearing is like, there wasn't maybe a lot of overt racism, but it was just just the fact that you were different because i think that's something that that a lot of people who aren't minorities don't even understand like why is it difficult being different like how yeah. is that is that what you're saying like that yeah that part was diff difficult absolutely so um the term microaggression which i'm sure we'll we'll talk about if you if you haven't already covered it in your podcast but um i didn't know what that was i didn't know what that meant um and that was like the height of my experience was just people saying things to either discredit you or to kind of knock you down a few pegs, whether they meant it or not, um, especially around your background or your ethnicity, where it's like, do you like a certain band? It's like, oh, you're not black. And it's like, mm. wait, why can't I be black and like what I like? You know, it was yeah. like I suddenly had to fit a certain box for people's narratives, you know, or if you did something that was stereotypical, you know, it's like, oh, you're so black. Why are you acting that way? And it's like, wait yeah. a minute, like now I'm too white to be black. I'm too black to be white. And so imagine that every day, several times a day for 13 years. And yeah. it really takes a toll on your identity. Yeah, absolutely. That's, it's, it's interesting hearing you have, hearing you say the same kind of stuff because mm -hmm. my only experience is obviously as a mixed person, right? My mom's black, my dad's white. So 
I've, I've identified a lot with identity struggles, right? And that's what a lot of this podcast was kind of birthed out of, right? Was these identity struggles. But the more conversations I'm having with what I'll say is actually actual black people, which is <laughs> whatever, that, whatever that means, right? Because I'm only half. But having these conversations with, it's not just about being half black, right? About yeah. being black, like there's identity that comes with that. I've had a lot of conversations with people about what does it mean to be black, right? Especially mm-hmm. in America. We, we haven't had a lot of conversations about race. I think it's interesting. I've had a lot more conversations with a lot of different people about race than I hadn't before, which I'm, I don't know if your experience has been the same, but because of our relationship, you were a pastor, you were our young adult pastor when we were out there in California. We probably had deeper discussions than I do with most, most of my friends and stuff. Um, but we, did, we didn't have a lot of conversations about race, but we did have some. Um, I remember one specifically, you were talking about your wife, who's Filipino. Mm-hmm. And you were saying how, and if I remember this right, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but being black in America, a descendant of slaves, like I am, we don't really have a nationality, a culture of, of our own, other than really being slaves black in America. Like, that's our culture. So you talked about when you, you told me when you married Katie, that she had this Filipino culture and you like fully embraced that. Like you thought that was so cool, like the food and everything. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so yeah, Katie's actually, she's half. So to, you know, she'd be perfect for your podcast as well. Yeah. So her dad is Filipino. Her mom is white uh, and actually from Minnesota. I think we've spoken about that a little bit yeah. too. But um, yeah, I think what was interesting is that um, being able to be with somebody who was also uh, a minority who also had their own set of struggles growing up racially, ident- like with their identity, we connected over that. And so it was cool to be able to learn so much about a culture I knew nothing about before we met. And there were so many things I wanted to try. And it wasn't that I was like, oh, now I'm Filipino. It was just yeah. like, wow, like there's so much. It's so rich. You can point back to things, you know, uh, whether it's the language or the food, you know, and, and black people, we, we have that in a sense, but a lot of it was taken from us in the sense that I can't point to the tribe I'm from. I can't point yeah. to a specific people group. And therefore, I don't necessarily know a native language or, or anything like that. Yeah. And so it was cool to be able to, I, not necessarily identify, but to embrace and um, know that my kids would be part Filipino. And like, yeah. I want to make sure they get the best of everything. And so, yeah, I jumped, you know, fully in. And yeah. one of the running jokes we have here is that, you know, I'm more Filipino than a lot of the people we meet because I cook the food <laughs> and I started learning Tagalog with my wife and oh, wow. the Philippines. And so, you know, yeah. I, I was, I jumped in. Yeah. Speaking of your daughter, you have the cutest little daughter in the world. <laughs> Maya, you, how old is she now? She just turned two yesterday. Just turned two, man. Uh, um, she's just, I just wanted to let you know, she's the cutest thing ever. Like, thank you, man. Love your daughter. Um, <laughs> Maya's amazing. Um, have you, I guess, Obviously, she's way too young for these conversations, but have you had thoughts about, um, because that's one thing that I've talked with other, we're not a parent, we're not parents, me and Jocelyn don't have kids yet, Um, but I've had conversations with my my cousin who's mixed like me, um, who married a white girl like I did. Now, he has two little girls who are a quarter black, but mostly white, Mm -hmm. Um, and talking about some of these racial conversations, identity conversations, I'm assuming you haven't really had a lot with Maya since she's only two, um, but have you thought about or talked with Katie about how you will approach race or oh, yeah. culture with her? Absolutely. In fact, you know, we do have 
some conversations and the, the way that we do it with our daughter is we just affirm her. And so every day um, she has a playtime that she does by herself. We stand in front of the mirror with her at the same time every day and we speak three affirmations over her. And so they range from anything about, you know, who we believe she is and the image of Christ yeah. and all that stuff. But often we include like, your hair is beautiful. Your skin yeah. is the perfect shade. Like, and just affirming those things now because the world's going to tell her otherwise eventually. Yep. And so we, that's, that's our first foray saying for the next, you know, for the first four years, you're going to hear that you're beautiful, that your skin is beautiful, that your shade is beautiful. We have a little family tree with cutouts from different family members and friends, and it's just all shades of brown. And at the yeah. bottom, it says, you know, all races, all people, every shade is beautiful. So just her seeing that and beginning to repeat it at two years old, it's like oh. the best part of my day. I love it. I love that. That's awesome, man. Um, I do want to get into a little bit uh, serious discussion, kind of why we, oh, this whole thing is a pretty serious discussion, but but why I started this podcast, a lot of it was in response to um, a, a tragic situation, a, a national situation that happened in my own backyard. I grew up in Minneapolis or just outside. And when, when George Floyd was killed, that it, it changed things for me in the sense that I knew racism still existed to a certain extent. You know, it's, it's better than it was, but I, I knew it was still there. Um, but I always looked at it maybe as I, it is naive and it's, but that it was kind of a Southern problem, right? Mm. Like even um, Ahmaud Arbery that was just a couple months earlier was in the South. So mm -hmm. as tragic as that was, and as bad as that was, it was kind of like their problem over there still. Right. Not that I'm not proud to say it like that, but that's kind of how right. I felt. Right. Like not that it was a good thing, not that I was okay with it, but I was like, we don't have that like that in Minnesota. Um, and then to see, to see George Floyd like that, and, and really it was the response from the city that, that was really hard. Like, obviously it was a bad situation and, and protests and, I'm, and I'm, it was good to see people, I guess, take it seriously, but it was also like the racial tension in Minneapolis took me by surprise, like that mm -hmm. it was that bad. And you could see the hurt and the frustration of it wasn't just a one-time incident, right? Yeah. Um, so from your perspective, what, what was your perspective or your thought when you saw this happen in Minneapolis and, and really the national response? I mean, there was, there was protests and riots in just about every major city in America, right? right. So yeah. including San Diego. So what mm -hmm. was kind of your thoughts seeing this? Did you think something like this could happen in Minnesota? I mean, we think about as far north as you can get, right? Like racism mm -hmm. is more of a Southern problem. That's the way that I looked at it as naive and probably stupid as that was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say, honestly, it didn't surprise me at all. Um, I, and, and here's why, because if there's a large black population in a city, there's going to be racial tension just because it's just going to happen. Yeah. And if there's not a large black po population, there's probably racial tension that's happened anyway. You know, you go to Alaska and I guarantee if there's a couple black people in Alaska, they're going to feel some type of racial tension. Yeah. Right? And it's not inherent to being black. It's just where, wherever there's race, there's racial tension. Yeah. There's no perfect utopia, you know? And so when I, I mean, you could slap any city name on there and I don't think I'd be surprised at all. Um, and so, you know, I was heartbroken. I didn't watch the video, still haven't seen it. I refuse to watch it. And that's part of the paradox of being black, I think. And I've shared this with a lot of my friends where that video has to exist, right? Yeah. But 
and I'm of the belief, this is my personal opinion, that at least for many Black people, like, don't watch it. Like, for, because for me, I, I didn't want that to be the, the lasting image and the memory I had of him, even though I didn't know him. Um, and if it happened to a family member for me, I would hate for that to be on every website, on every page, yeah. you know, on repeat. But that's the paradox, because if that video doesn't exist, then there's absolutely no justice, you know, like yeah. so many cases beforehand. And so we live in this tension of like, we need it and it's awful at the same time. So I definitely wasn't surprised, but it hurt, you know, for sure. I was working on a video for with a friend of mine for Ahmaud Arbery's uh, a tribute to him. Yeah. And then we had Breonna Taylor. And then I remember waking up and hearing about George Floyd and I refused to watch it. And I honestly, I didn't read anything about it. I just stayed away from it. And I was like, I'm not ready to go there. And then one day I woke up and I just read as much as I could about it. And I broke down sobbing. I'm not a super emotional guy. I don't really cry that often. And I wept like I've never wept before. Yeah. And I, I was feeding my daughter and I just looked at her and I told her, so no matter what the world tells you I am, I will always be your dad. And that I just broke down, like heaving. My, I was crying so loud. My wife woke up from the other room and she was like, are you, what's going on? And so that, it just hit me hard. You know, just, I think it was everything that I felt for the last 29 years of my life kind of came to a head. Yeah. It's a heavy response, but it's, like you said, you didn't know him, but you can identify with some of that, right? And you can, like you said, all of the, the stuff that, that's come the last 29 years, kind of put that in perspective. Um, have you had conversation, like Jocelyn and I have had more conversations about race over the last five months than we have the eight years we've been married, right? Mm -hmm. Have you had more conversations with people? How, what does that look like? What has your response been, I guess, like, taking the time to, to properly uh, digest it, grieve that. But then what has been your response been since then? Yeah, I'll say the biggest thing that has changed for me really in two ways. One is being able to communicate with my family about this. And you would think, oh, like a black family probably talks about it all the time. And in reality, um, we had never all, I have two sisters, all five of us in our family, uh, we had never really sat down and talked about it and our experience at that school that I went to yeah. growing up. And so for about two hours, um, a couple months ago, we sat down and just talked and shared stories with my mom and my dad and got to hear from their perspective. They're from the deep South. They're from the bottom of Alabama. Um, and so they have a different perspective that we have growing up in North Carolina. And so that was a conversation that I had never really had before, even though we've had racial tension in America for as long as we can remember, you know, and then the second thing is that I, I have had a lot more conversations with people. I've been free to talk about race for the last 10 years. God has done a healing work in my heart where I'm not angry and, I, and I'm not as frustrated anymore. Well, there are times where I'm still frustrated, but I, I've learned to gear that frustration to helpful places. Yeah. Um, but I've been invited to speak at places you know, because I'm black, I've been yeah. invited to, you know, share my thoughts and opinions, you know, in, in a different way, because I can articulate, you know, things that I'm thinking. And so it's been an interesting um, blessing in this time to be able to share from a black perspective, from a godly perspective, um, and honestly, just from a, another human who's been dealing with this, like everyone else. Yeah. One of, one of the, the things you do is you, you put, you've put out, I don't know how many you've still done. I know you're taking a social media break, um, but you had put out some videos really kind of starting the conversation, really helping people understand, right? Because I think a lot of, a lot of the issues that the race issues that I've experienced in my own life, 
is really from people not understanding and not knowing and really out of ignorance. Like they say something they didn't know was hurtful because they didn't know it was hurtful, right? They didn't have bad intentions. They just didn't understand that. Um, one of the videos you posted that I thought was really good was um, about positive stereotypes and why that's dangerous. And I think that's, yeah. that's one of those that people don't understand why not to say that. So can you, can you explain what you said in that video a little bit? Because I think I like the way you said that really well. Yeah, so a lot of that I actually pulled from an article on NPR because it gave voice to something I've been feeling my entire life. And so some of the pieces from that come from that. But basically, in essence, uh, stereotypes are shortcuts, right? Uh, yeah. Whether they're positive or negative. And that's why they're dangerous. You know, just like in life, if you take a shortcut, you're like, I don't really know how this is going to end up. You know, you could arrive where you wanted to go and it's like, well, what did I miss along the way? Yeah. And so when you use a positive stereotype, let's say you see someone who's tall and black and you're like, they're good at basketball. I'm going to bring this up in conversation. And yeah. they're like, hey, man, do you play basketball? And it's like, now whether they do or not, like you've already shortcut getting to know them instead of asking, what do you like to do? You're assuming something based yeah. on how they look. Positive stereotypes are also a trap because they're very limiting. And when yeah. you assume something based on how I look uh, and I don't hold up now to your standard, I feel like a failure, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. you can do it with Asians in math. You can do it with black people in athletics where it's like, you're tall, you're black. You should be doing what I think you should be doing with yeah. your life. And now you're not being held up to the standard I want. Now I'm disappointed and now you feel disappointed too. And you're knocking people just notches down. And honestly, like it's unnecessary. You can just yeah. ask and say like, hey, like, what is it? How, you know, what can I know about you? Like what's most important in your life instead of just assuming? And that pain and that, that, that feeling of inferiority when people use that, it's felt by people of color every second of every day all around the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's just, people don't realize that. They're like, oh, I, why wouldn't you want me to think that you're good at math if you're Asian? And it's like, because it's limiting. Like I could be good at whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so just take the time to get to know me as a person and stop trying to connect race with ability. Because yeah. when people do that on the positive end, they also can do it quickly on the negative end. Oh, you're yeah. tall and black, you're athletic. Oh, you're black, that must mean you're lazy. Yeah. Oh, you're Asian, you're a bad driver. It's like, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You know, yeah. so. No, that's, that's good. That's, I mean, cause that's, uh, that's a big thing that I talk about too, is getting to know people, right? Like, don't, don't assume anything about anyone. Don't paint anyone with a, with a broad brush, whether it's, whether it is blacks or Asians or police officers or Christians or Muslims, like, right. We're all different people. We all have our own unique experiences. We all have our own uh, likes and interests and, and we all act and think a different way. Right. Like, like no two people are the same. Um, you talked about your, your opportunities to, um, to speak at places. Um, can you talk a little bit about as, as a pastor, right? So you were the young adult pastor when I was out there. Um, you just switched jobs to you're an associate pastor for the online church, correct? Yep. So whether it's in that role, whether it's in um, just the platform that you have as a pastor or, or opportunities to speak at other churches or wherever that is, um, what has kind of been your experience in that? What has been maybe your objective um, when you're doing that? Is, is it a, a good experience? Because I know I've also had conversations with black people that are like, like they've had all these people come to them now and be like, Oh, you're a black person. What, what, mm -hmm. what, what do you think about George Floyd? What do you think about this situation? And I, one of my, one of my good friends here, uh, Ryan, he always, 
he, I've had a few conversations with him and other people. And he always says, before he even starts, he says, I just want you to know, I'm not speaking for all black people right now. This is my yes. perspective. This is my opinion. And I don't, and it, you obviously do speaking in front of people. And I know you're comfortable with that. And I, I enjoy listening to your sermons and, and your videos and stuff. But so it's not everyone likes doing that though. Not every black person wants to be open and speak about race. And maybe they're not in that place of healing that you said you arrived at 10 years ago. Talk, that's a lot, that's a lot there, but kind of talk <laughs> about what, what that's been like for you. Yeah. Um, so it was when I got to college about 10 years ago that God started to do a work in my heart and he was showing me that how he was going to use my past growing up in kind of a mainly white community to allow me to be a bridge for people. And when I first got to college, I started to see that I was bringing my white and black friends together. Um, and I was like, whoa, this is so weird that they are still so segregated. And so after um, George Floyd's death, uh, Pastor Marcus, who I know you know, he called me and he said, hey, like, you need to start writing because people are going to call you and they're going to want to know what you think. And he, I was kind of like, nah, like, I'm, I'm nobody. But, yeah. Yeah, I'm still the same guy. But he was just like, nope, you need to get ready. And he's like, I want to bring into my church to speak. I want to do this. I want to do this. He was like, you just really need to ask the Lord, like, what it is you want to say? And I was like, he spoke with such conviction. Yeah. He was like, you know, he, he's, uh, you know, Latino. And he was like, I, I can flow and he, I can connect to both cultures, but I have my own ethnic background. He was like, yeah. you're going to be called upon in this time, so prepare yourself. And he really encouraged me to do that. So I started writing, ended up writing a message that I was able to give about how to love hurting people well in this time, specifically geared towards the black community. Um, I started making those videos and I just said, Lord, like, what do you want me to do? Like, how can I respond? Because the, the response, honestly, from the white community was really overwhelming. People were like, yeah. I want to know, I want to support. And I was kind of like, like, truthfully, like, why now? Like, what has changed today? Yeah. We've been saying the same thing since the 50s. Like, what has changed today? And to be honest, I still don't know. And I don't really need the answer. I don't necessarily care. But it was kind of like, why is there this response now that people want to know? And it was just like, okay, whatever. People's arms are open. Their ears are open for some people. And so yeah. let's just speak to those who are willing to listen. And so those videos I was making on my Instagram, they're really geared towards white people who are saying, help me understand. Yeah. Um, black people are not a monolith, though. My opinion is my opinion. And um, a lot of black people may disagree with that. And that's okay. Like, yeah. that actually just helps show that we're different. You should get to know us. Exactly. Know? So. Let's have the conversations for sure. Yeah. Um, there's a couple of things in there that, I, that caught my attention, but one of them was a lot of people, are, there's a lot of, we'll, we'll generalize, but specifically a lot of white people are kind of wanting to know more, wanting to do more, wanting to engage in conversations they've never had before. Right. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's that we live in a society that allows that kind of change right now? I, there's a lot of talk about like cancel culture and like, you know, I, people that, you know, basically crucified Colin Kaepernick back in 2016 are now saying, oh, maybe, he, maybe he was onto something here. Are we, do we live in a society where we allow people to grow like that? Um, I would say yes, but I don't expect people from the world's perspective to do that. It has to be believers first. We have to be the ones that are different. And if we don't get it right, how can we expect the world to do it? Yeah. Right. So, yes, we have cancel culture today. We have all these things where you slip up one time and you're out. 
some of that has been beneficial in the sense that there has been an increased sense of accountability. We yeah. had the Me Too movement. We've had all these things where it's like, you cannot mess around anymore. You're going to get found out. Yeah. On the other end, you know, we have, um, there's been zero grace because the world has no reason to give people grace, right? Oh, that's like, true. The internet is a lynch mob. Like you mess up, we've got the photos, we're going to post it and we want you to lose your job and to pay for it. So that's why believers, we have to be the ones to lead with grace where it's like, hey, we are all jacked up. I'm jacked up. And the only reason why I have a chance is because Jesus gave me hope. And so I don't expect the world to understand that. And I don't look for the world to provide that. That's why it has to come from the body of Christ. Wow, that's good. That's really good because the church struggles with that yeah they really do and like you're saying we as the church that's we have that the world doesn't have that the world you're right and i guess i've never really thought about it that way maybe i haven't thought enough about that but like the the world doesn't have a reason to give second chances the world doesn't they don't understand grace they don't understand the the life-changing power of jesus christ we understand that Mm -hmm. we more than anyone should be should be preaching grace, should be showing grace, showing love to everybody. Wow, that was good. I, that, was, that was really good, man. Like I, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way before. Maybe I should have. Um, yeah, and I think that's why, honestly, the race conversation in church has been so painful because yeah. we have the answer. Um, obviously, Jesus is the answer, but systemic racism is still a real thing. Like, there's things that need to happen. We can't just paste the Jesus Band-Aid on it and say, well, yeah. Jesus just needs to change people's hearts. Well, there's actual work we can do in society as well to partner, you know, with the the saving grace of Jesus. So when the church ignores that conversation, there's no hope for the world, right? Because we're the ones that can bring actual hope and change. Um, And so if the church is, you know, turning a blind eye to racism, because I don't know what the statistic is, but 90% of churches are segregated. Yeah. Then we're we're doing a disservice to the world. Yeah, that's actually the 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 next thing I want to talk about was. And I'm going to say a lot of things right here and you can maybe find a question in it, right? If I, if I say something that sparks you, but Jocelyn, I loved Rock Church. The diversity in and of itself was amazing. Like you don't see that. I've never seen that in another church. And I haven't been to a lot of places, a lot of churches around the world, but I grew up in Minnesota, went to school in Oklahoma, Uh, different churches I've been to, whether it's watching on YouTube or whatever, you don't, you don't see that kind of diversity. Uh, Love that about the Rock Church. So if you want us to talk specifically about that, but what is the church's role in this? What do you see as the church's role? What is your role as a pastor? Um, one of the things that I, that I noticed was uh, that first Sunday after the death of George Floyd, every pastor in America was scrambling to, how do I deal with this? Specifically mm-hmm. here in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, our own, we have a, an older white pastor whose son actually preached that week. He's kind of like, they preached kind of together. Um, but still a middle-aged white man from the suburbs, you struggle, you saw him struggle to like, how do we, how do we handle this? Um, mm-hmm. His, his son, so our head pastor's grandson, pastors, one of our campuses um, in, over in St. Paul. And he really gave space for uh, their, his number two and number three. So the two associates at that campus uh, are black men that he grew up with that actually graduated high school with really good friends. He gave them space to talk Um Stephen Furtick and John Gray caught my attention Two people that I thought did it the right way because those are people that had a relationship and they had a conversation together and broadcasted it to both of their churches. So again, the church, the church trying to tackle racism, trying to deal with racism, maybe 
some churches even talking about it for the first time because it is a little uncomfortable and it isn't one that we have a lot in. And if your church is predominantly white, you don't have to have those conversations. Even if you're predominantly black, you don't have to have those conversations because you're not a minority in your church, right? If you go to a black church. So again, I said a lot here, but basically the church's role, what, what do you see as the church's role in this? Um, how would you, I guess, assess how the church has responded so far? Yeah. And then the importance of a, a diverse church like the rock and how do you even make that happen? Yeah. Um, so I think the church's role has got to be to reflect the heart of God, right? Um, God is partnering with his church. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. He's partnering with his church to reflect God's love to the world. That's what we've always been here to do. Yeah. So as the institution, the church, we have to be about that. Um, and there, there's a lot of layers to that. But I think one way we have to be about it, we've got to admit where we've gotten it wrong. Yeah. And, you know, historically, the church has not been at the forefront of changing hearts and minds about racism. We've perpetuated racism often. And that, when yeah. I say the church, I mean the larger church, you know. Um, and I think that was exposed in a lot of ways, you know, when something like this happens and it's on a national scale and it's like, what's my church going to say about this? Many churches said nothing. And that yeah. showed that they're like, this isn't an issue for us. We don't have to talk about it. And we, there, you know, you can do your own research, but there were black people who were leaving large evangelical churches in droves because their pastors either didn't yeah. address it, refused to call racism sin, you know, or they, you know, they, everything that you could imagine happened. Yeah. And so the church has got to be at the tip of this because like we said earlier, like we have the answer, which is transforming hearts. We can make all the best policies in the world yeah. and hearts still not be transformed. And here's what I always tell people. Cause they're like, well, we need better laws. Yes, we do. We need, you know, better accountability for our police officers. We need all these things, but think about this. Murder is still illegal in every yeah. state and it still happens. Yeah. So the laws itself actually just show us where we've gone wrong. We need transformed hearts and yeah. that should happen and has to happen through the work of Jesus and the Holy spirit through the body of Christ. But if those people refuse to acknowledge that there is a problem, then that work cannot take place. God's just, you know, I don't think he's just going to run over and touch people's hearts without, you know, that happening. So yeah. um, wow. that's why diversity in the church is so important because yeah. we're saying it's about getting to know each other's struggles, each other's pains, each other's um, joys, each other's, you know, failures. And we're like, man, you're just like me. We're both made in the image of God. Yeah. And we, I can understand you better when I get to know your story. Um and ultimately, you know, in Revelation 7, 9, this is John writing. He says, you know, after this, I looked, behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and languages standing before the throne. Like, that's the picture. God's people united together in unity, worshiping him, every tribe, every color, every shade, every, everything you can imagine. Yeah. And if we can reflect that on earth, we're showing the world this is who our God is. And when we're segregated, uh, when we're hidden, when we are isolated, that does not reflect the love of the Father, whether it's a white church only, a black church only, a Mexican church only, you know, an Asian church only, whatever. Wow. I, yeah. I, I want to, I kind of want to be done just to have that, that mic drop moment right there, because that was really good. That was a great place to end. But I, I just thought of a couple more things while we were talking. Yeah. Um, and then I do want to give you more time to, if, if there's anything else you want to say. But so the last thing that I'm going to ask is, um, specifically again, talking about churches, a couple of things that I saw churches do 
I don't know how bad they were or if it was a mistake or if they did it wrong or maybe they did it right and did their best. But two things that I saw a lot of that first Sunday, right, is white pastors trying to trying their best to address it, but but missing. Like it just felt awkward. It, it, they didn't really say the right thing. They might have even said something offensive because they were trying too hard, um, which in my opinion may be better than saying nothing. Um, and then the other thing was I, I talked to people at different churches that they basically tried to find any black person. They like <laughs> scrambled, like we need a black guy to, to say something here. Right. Yeah. Maybe you even had people reach out to you. You didn't have great relationships with that said, Hey, I know you're a pastor. I know you're black. Can you come at our church yeah. or something like that? <laughs> what do you think of those two situations? I guess white pastors trying and maybe making it worse. And, and then maybe reaching out to people who they don't really know and, and kind of like maybe, again, maybe both of these people, their hearts are probably in the right place. But Mm -hmm. in my perspective that it felt off when I I saw a lot of that and talked to a lot of people who experienced that, especially that first Sunday after George Floyd. What I would say is that however people initially responded was probably an indicator of how things have already been. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you didn't have great relationship with black people in your church or in your city, if you were a white senior pastor that first Sunday, you were probably terrified and scrambling, right? Yeah. Which is not, you know, I, I don't want to judge you on just that one message, but it was probably an indicator of how things had been going. Mm. If you were a church, let's say you're a white senior pastor, and you had already had a finger on the pulse of the racial tension in your city because you were invested in the people. If you uh, were already kind of in talks with having ongoing relationships and all that stuff, it probably wasn't as scary because you're saying, man, okay, we're ready to jump into this. Yeah. I'm, I feel like I'm always on the side of like A for effort. Like I yeah. want to see you try instead of, you know, silence is violence type of thing. Yeah. A lot of people are going to get it wrong. And that goes back to grace. Like we have mm-hmm. to be the people who say, Ooh, like when you said that earlier, that was offensive and here's why, but let's work together so that you can be more prepared for next time. Yeah. But if someone comes out and says something that's offensive and they're like, cancel them, I'm never going to that church again. Da, 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 da. It's like, great, we're acting just like the world and they're not going to learn. And they're just, now they're just going to say, I'm not going to say anything. Like I didn't have to say anything in the first place. So this is why I didn't say anything. Yeah. So I, and I spoke to a lot of black people and then I was like, Hey, like this is the time, like we got to strike while the iron is hot. People like never before, especially white people are wanting to learn more. We yeah. can't now, you know, turn our noses up and be like, figure it out. No, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. They're asking questions. Like, isn't this what we've always wanted? Yep. And now with that being said, I do encourage people to do your own research before you go to your black friend, yep. you know, look stuff up, like read the articles, read a book and then say, Hey, this is what I was reading. You know, would you mind sharing some of your experiences? Always ask it, ask for permission before you just yep. say, Hey, tell me about your racist experiences growing up. They're like, yeah. I don't want to get into this with you. Yeah. Like those are wounds and trauma, you know? Yeah. So I definitely encourage people do your own research, but Again, I think some churches, like you said, they hit it out of the park, but they were probably already doing the work of mm-hmm. racial reconciliation in their city. For other churches, they were like, you know, if the, if the white pastor speaks alone, they're like, why didn't he bring black people in with him? If yep. he brings black people, they're like, why didn't he just say something by himself? So a lot of people probably thought they couldn't win. And I think, I think the big thing that from that is what I thought is, is the relationships ahead of time, right? Like, I think, I think a big reason why I love what, what uh, Stephen Furtick and John Gray did was those are two people that had a relationship already. Um, the pastor at our, at our St. Paul campus 
uh, Jamie Hammond brought in two people that are high level in his church already and good friends that he has a relationship with. And, and I, I agree that if, if you were scrambling there, that means that there probably was already an issue, right? Because you weren't, you should have been prepared for that. You already should have been. It's not like, it's not like racism just started back when George exactly. died, right? So it wasn't it's not like, like you have like, to prepare a message on what do we do in aliens land? It's like, yeah, this right? has been happening. <laughs> yeah, this has been, it's, and it's not even, it's not even like this is the first time since Rodney King that this has happened or the first time right. since Martin Luther King or, or like slavery ended and then we were good for, you know, hundred some years and then this happened. Like, I agree with you, you could have been prepared, but I think the big thing is those relationships. Like you talked about, um, you don't want some random white person to come up and be like, oh, you're black. How does racism, you know, but if you have a relationship with somebody, if you, if you have people in your life and you should, and that's the thing is if you're, if you are white in this, and again, not, not like, um, throwing blame at them or throwing them under the bus. Now, I think now's a chance to learn and get better. But if, if you're white and in your response to, to whether it was George Floyd or Brianna Taylor before that, or any of that thing, any of that, that's been happening more recently. If your response, if, if your response couldn't be going to a black person that I have a relationship with, not just, oh yeah, I have a black friend, so I'm not racist, but like actually have a relationship with, then I think that's maybe where you need to start is how can I develop relationships with some of these people, you know? But that's, that's kind of all that I had to talk about. I think we could have more conversations, uh, maybe in the future, maybe we'll do a part two with you sometime because yeah. um, I love that talking about how you, you feel called to, and you knew since high school, to, to kind of be that bridge. I don't think there's a lot of people, because I feel some of that as well, being half black, that, that I can speak to both worlds, right? And I think we need more, build, more bridge builders. In fact, I'll um, quote from, from Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman, who we just lost, uh, mm-hmm. in the movie said, in, in times of trouble, we need to build bridges, not barriers. Mm-hmm. And I think we need more bridge builders in the world right now. And so I, I want to continue to have more conversations with you uh, offline as friends, but also uh, in places like this and spaces like this where people can hear it. But I want to give you one last uh, chance to say anything else, closing final thoughts, uh, anything you, you think we didn't cover and you want to make sure uh, get set in this, in this conversation. Yeah. I, I just think uh, once again, just to, to sum it up, it's, it's about the relationships, you know, um, I always end my videos with a quote from Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. You know, we have to be people who offer grace. You're not going to get it right every time. I'm not going to get it right every time. Um, so do the best you can, you know. And if you say something offensive, or somebody calls you out, commit to learning more. Commit to understanding why it was painful. Um, and, and let's move forward together. But, uh, yeah, just do, do the best you can. And when you learn, apply it to the next time. So it's been an honor, man. Thank you for having me on here. And I'd love to continue the conversation. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. Vince Freeman, thank you for listening. And join me next Monday for Mixing America.